Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, episode 418. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy to have you here today. And I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, Phil Singleton. Phil is the owner of Bare Knuckle Marketing. He's a web designer, author, and podcast host. And Phil, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much, Kim. Oh, me too. Listeners, just in the pre-chat, we were talking about our twin experiences. We're both the parents of twins. We've done work in the marketing world, both podcast hosts. I'm not an author yet. Phil, I'd love to talk to you about that at some point. Listeners have yeah, been hearing me talking about Yeah, some great acts that you'll love. Oh, please, because I've been talking about my book for years now. It needs to get out of my head. So, I mean, it's gotten to the point that my mom is telling me that she's just going to write it, so I stopped talking about it. <laughs> and I'm like, no. Awesome. I will do it. I'll do it. But I would love if you would share how you got to where you are today with the listeners. Oh, yeah, my pleasure, because I definitely took a very unconventional path. And, you know, I basically make a good living on on making websites, but I didn't make my first one until I was 35 years old. So and if I roll it back even further, you know, I went to school for finance and first job out of school was was with an insurance company in Connecticut, actually. And really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. We're in Connecticut. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt so rudely. Fairfield, which is kind of southern. I know. I was working in Greenwich when I moved to Ohio. Oh, yeah. Next door neighbors in. Yeah. I was designing offices for hedge funds, actually. Uh huh. That must have been fun. A little bit of budget there. Oh, just a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) More money on a square foot of carpet than I would put into furniture in my whole house. Crazy. Yeah. Very crazy. Okay. So, finance and working in insurance to web design sounds like, I mean, that's to a lot of people, including me, that sounds like two different planets. Yeah, and there was just a lot that went on because, like, you know, when I was in college, I guess I always felt like I had plenty of confidence. But you know, as soon as I got out into the work world, a couple of things. One is I just developed this a lot of anxiety to where I could barely even communicate with people. I think I did okay in the job the three years that I was there, but it didn't take too long to figure out that I was basically my soul was dying basically inside of a cubicle, and I figured I had to do something different because I didn't want to be one of these guys that were in this insurance company in Connecticut that had been there. And a lot of the guys I was working with had been there for 20 or 30 years and looked like corporate zombies, and I was like, I have to do something different now. I'm miserable. you know. I already had kind of anxiety issues to deal with that piece, but I was also just not very happy. So I ended up like really doing something radical because I felt like I had to do something really different to just change my whole life and change my destiny or the trajectory of my career. Uh, But I ended up packing my bags over the course of like a two-week period, again, at the end of that three-week stretch at the insurance company, and moved to Asia. And I uh, moved to Taiwan, and I ended up just wanting to go on an adventure. And I I think people at that time probably thought (laughs) – I lost my mind and perhaps I did did lose a little bit of it, but I knew I needed to do something drastic to kind of change my path. And I did that and I ended up staying in Taiwan for about 10 years. I went there for two years at first to study Mandarin and do something different. I ended up coming back to the States to get my MBA and then got a job and moved back out there for another eight years. And that first stint though I was there, I actually ended up meeting my wife who's Taiwanese. So fast forward a little bit, the end of my stint in Taiwan was really kind of like the early 2000s. You know, I was doing venture capital slash business development in Taipei, Taiwan during the dot-com era. So I was helping like tech companies raise money from Asian investors. It was really cool because there was a lot of money back then. People were investing before that little dot-com bubble burst. Um, it was great being a foreigner, English, you know, Chinese-speaking, like Westerner in, in Taipei because it really right. helped open a lot of doors. You know, I made an impression at a younger age. So, But that thing burst over, you know, overnight after like a nice three-year run. And I started doing more business development. And again, long story short, a software company while I was in Taiwan that was actually based in the Midwest kind of just fell into my lap. And I ended up basically running this company because they had to move offshore and ended up having like 25 employees. And what I learned at that time was – even back then, this is going back like 15 years ago, a lot of purchases were being you know, driven by Google and online stuff. So that was really my first 
discovery about you know digital and the importance of the internet because I saw at this software company they were running it was consumer software you know half of our sales were coming outside of like retail stores and most of those online sales were coming from like affiliate marketers right so they had these like blogs and forums and stuff like that and they'd have these little badges up and people would click through to our website and the big affiliates we were paying like 50% commission on this $99 piece of software well, the big guys were getting like fifty, sixty, eighty thousand dollars a month, and I'm like, holy cow, how is this happening? And it was because you know Google was driving a lot of this stuff, and and it really just opened my eyes, and I was like, okay, I see how the world's working now. Is like everybody's going online to buy stuff, and then and, and Google's you know a big part of it, and still is even more so to the day. And and again, long story short, ended up selling that company. It was a nice payday, but it wasn't like retire forever and you know buy an island. Moved back to the States, to Kansas City, where I have roots, and kind of fumbled around for a year. Again, I'm in my mid-30s at this point. Ended up doing a barter for an auto detailer, actually, because we bought a car not shortly after we moved back. And ended up making this guy a website in which I had no idea, no business promising a guy that I could build a website. I knew I could probably help him with, with you know, rankings and getting traffic to it. This is like 2005, but I had no idea how to build a website. I told him, hey, you know what? I'm going to build a website for you. We'll do a little bit of a trade. And it was a very painful experience for me, of course, like a week or two to try and figure out how to use Dreamweaver and eventually Microsoft front page, which is defunct. But I made this guy the ugliest little one-page <laughs> website you've ever seen. But like six days later... He calls me up and he's like, Phil, you know, you changed my business, you changed my life. And I was like, boom, finally, 35 years old. I know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I'm going to be a web designer that can, you know, help people with Google and help them generate leads and grow their business. That was the moment where. Phil, I have to I pause can... you for a second, though. So you said that was 2005, though. So the barter was not after your twins. So the. 2000, auto- eh, they were born in 2009. Okay. So. Because I know that a barter for auto detail in return for a website, if I did it, oh my gosh, I would feel bad for the person doing the auto detail. I just had to throw that humor in there. I think you're, I mean, it was, he didn't really, he didn't have one. This poor guy that was doing it though, he was selling auto details for $25 a car to auto shop dealership. So he was like killing himself, making nothing. Right. Of it, and I said, if you had your own website and could get to the direct consumer, you could maybe sell for a hundred or two hundred dollars a car. So it was a big game changer for him. But yeah, you're right. And the barter thing was like, it was just, I just figured, hey, you know what? I have no business promising this guy that I could build a website, but I figured if I really fell on my face, I could find somebody <laughs> to build me a website for him for five hundred or a thousand bucks or something back then, and, and just kind of eat my medicine. But you know, I was determined. But and thank goodness I went out on a limb like that because it's really. I didn't mention, I think, going back to college, I got a, I almost flunked out of computer science. I got a D. It was the worst grade I ever got, I think, in my whole life. And here I am. You know, Now I've got a pretty good, you know, thriving little digital agency where I make a really good living on computers. Right. But it all started with that one little you know, barter back uh, 13 or so years ago. Wow. When I started this round of business in 2012, I signed up for one of those GoDaddy websites in a weekend, which is painful now to think about. GoDaddy, please don't get mad at me and sue me. But looking at where it's evolved to since then, I mean, I've learned WordPress. I would love to have a little discussion about that with you. But I had an e-commerce shop that I started in 2005, and it was all hard-coded. I can't even tell you if it was Dreamweaver. All I know is somehow, somewhere online, I found a web developer who built an awesome site that worked, and it brought money in consistently. That's great, but you took action too, right? I mean, it's not like you... Oh, yeah. I mean, I had to load. It was e-commerce. I started on eBay. And then I realized I should really be driving people to my site. I don't know what prompted me to do that. Oh, I remember I was tired of paying eBay fees. because <laughs> I was paying like $900 a month because of all my sales and all my products that I had listed. And I was like, you know, if I had this on my own site, then I could be driving people and I wouldn't be paying 40 cents a month for the listing and then the sale fee i mean ebay was probably making more on a monthly basis than i was off of my products so yeah he built it and i learned how to use zen cart i think it was Mm. and yeah different time different place i don't know if zen cart's even around i mean now we have woocommerce for wordpress but sure so you built the site hurrah hooray good job And you changed his life. And I interrupted so horribly when you were about to say you realized that's what you were supposed to do. 
So how did that happen? Well, I just figured, you know, here I had this guy who literally had like, I could hear the emotions in his voice. And I was like, yeah, that was really professionally rewarding. But then I was like, gosh, you know, if I could do this for other businesses, I can make money off of that, right? Because you, you can help people. And in the, in the beginning, I don't know how people feel about this. It's funny, I talk to some people and they're always like, you know, be careful about having to give stuff away for free. It's, and it's a um, slippery slope. But for me, once I saw there was an opportunity, I actually, I consider reinvested in myself and found other bartering opportunities and other ways to almost either give or give it away really cheaply. And the reason I did that is because I figured, man, having one good reference is one thing, but if you've got a book of like four or five screaming references, that's something that you can really sell against. And that's what I did. I ended up doing a few more and built up a little book. And then I actually started to get pretty good rankings for my own web design and SEO services. And then the leads started coming in. And then the barters, you know, went from charging people thousand to three thousand to five thousand to now you know we chart generally for a custom website we're starting eight to ten thousand which isn't a big deal for somebody if they ends up being a way for them to generate and grow their business um the same thing with the seo services it started off i think the first one i did was like 350 dollars and now you know national companies you know our sweet spot's probably the two to three thousand dollar a month range where we do a bunch of digital stuff for people sometimes more than that for larger ones but again it's, it's one of those deals where you price based on value. And if you're helping somebody grow their business and your fee is a fraction to the amount of revenues they're given in, it's really becomes a drop in the bucket. And that's kind of how I positioned myself from the very beginning. That's really how it kind of worked is investing in yourself, getting good, you know, reviews and, and references, and then eventually being able to find a price point and a market size where it really fits. And that's kind of where we are right now, kind of that smaller, larger business. And it all, again, it's just so odd to think that I was like, I'm the poster boy for if he can do it, anybody can do it because I have no business, Uh you know, go looking back early on that, you know, be running an agency and helping people out with marketing. Yeah. Oh, same with me. I mean, I never thought that I would be looking at ROI and open statistics and all these numbers. Both my parents were accountants. And the last thing I wanted to do was look at numbers, which actually in interior architecture, I had to look at a lot of numbers. I had to look at measurements all the time. But I convinced myself it was different because I also looked at color. I guess I could consider the red in spreadsheets, you know, as color, but I just didn't want to do it. I never thought I would be here today. Yeah. I want to touch upon what you said, though, about the value, because that took me the longest time to realize what value am I providing to my clients? And I had such a problem with confidence because I didn't understand that value. So I undercharged my services greatly for, I would have to say, the first three and a half, four years of my business. You and me both. I mean, I didn't really dawn on me I was undercharging, actually, until I joined this duct tape marketing with this guy, John Jansen, I wrote the books I wrote with. But it basically got into the you know, value versus time and the hours. And I went into the first meeting I went with these guys, which was basically like-minded kind of solo marketer, small agency types. And I went in thinking like, gosh, I'm a hero. I, I can charge somebody $350 a month for SEO. And you know, it was like, some of these guys, because you bring in this much business, you should be charging a lot more. You're really underselling yourself for the amount of value. And I was like, oh man, you're right. And I remember just coming back that next year and totally changing my price structure and I had my best year ever because I was able to like figure out what my actual value was on the but you're right there is some of that which is like hey if you're used to like trying to value yourself or not having the confidence in what you're delivering or just I think a lot of people in the beginning like me is I'm like I think my value might be good but I don't think people are going to want to pay me because I'm small or it's just me or I have a small team so yeah. they're going to automatically think I'm worth less yep. so I have to charge less than maybe an agency even like bring the same value well mm-hmm. I changed that right away and that was the best decision I ever made because we had a huge jump in revenues of course a lot of that was just being able to price it correctly and a lot of people they didn't want to lose the they understood once you pitched it and I was like here's what people actually should be paying here's what you're paying you've had kind of a free ride for a while and now let's get you priced closer to like what the market rates and what the value is and but you still get people I still get to this day where people are still trying to figure out, well, you're charging us this much. How much time are you spending on the account? Well, it's not about time. It's about here's what we do. It doesn't matter if I spend a minute or a hundred minutes or, you know, we do what it takes. As long as, you know, the service that we're getting, we can prove that it's helping you get leads and sales and it's a high ROI, then it should be really based on the value and not the amount of time that you spend. When I finally realized that I was charging the wrong amount, I knew it, but it took me another year to get it through my thick head, was that I took on a client 
for Infusionsoft work who I think we agreed on like a $3,000 project paid into installments. It was a huge project though. And at that point, I mean, I was an Infusionsoft certified partner. I am an Infusionsoft certified partner, but I didn't have confidence in what I was offering. So I was charging $50 an hour. Now, listeners, if you don't know much about Infusionsoft, this is not a pitch or a promo for my products, but the going rate for Infusionsoft certified partners is at least 150 to 200 Starting. Right, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> like giving it away almost. Absolutely. So when I'm out there on Upwork or Elance or whatever it was at that time, putting out proposals as an Infusionsoft certified partner at $50 an hour, I was getting way too much work. So I had to hire people to support me. And experienced Infusionsoft people knew more than I did about how much they were worth. So to help me cover my butt, they were charging me 40 to 45 Right. I mean, when we're running our company, 5 to $10 of difference really isn't anything when we're out there doing all the marketing, right? Like, right. So anyway, I got this contract for 3000 and it was severe scope creep. And that was another problem. I had lack of confidence to say, no, that was not in our original contract. And that's contract. a slippery slope, right? I mean, oh, it so is. And that project ended up costing me $8,000. Uh, I know I, exactly where it don't feel bad. We've all been there. And it the way that it like really hit its peak and was like the big aha was I was on my first vacation with my family to visit my family. If you can call that a vacation, I love you family, but a vacation (laughs) to see family is not a vacation. Right. So I started getting text messages. They were suicide threats. I'm going to kill myself if you don't work on my work, even though you're on vacation. Oh, man. I'm like, are you serious? That's brutal. You have added to the scope, which is why we needed to do all this extra work. Or like, so. I, well, the other thing, too, is like, really, I really, really had to. Because I'm a yes person. I always want to please people. Uh-huh. So, gosh, it's hard. And once the first time you give away something for free, I mean, you just kill, your, I mean, you just kill yourself. Because it's like, then it cheapens your rate, basically. Yeah. And then they expect more free stuff and you keep going and they don't ever look back and say, gosh, you gave me this much value. They're just like, oh, this is what I should have been getting all the time. How much more free stuff can we get in? So and I think I'll, you're a lot of the same way. I definitely have just gotten so much better over the years at scoping things out and anything that's off scope. But there's a price to pay for it. And, you know, occasionally we'll bend once and say, here's the one thing that we will squeeze in. But guess what? Now the ticker starts. And um, if you guys want something different than we agree, then we got to start paying for it. And that takes a little bit of, but I think most people are reasonable too. You know, they'll do it if you're upfront about it and you get to say, hey, put some thought into what we're actually going to be doing for you. But man, that's, isn't that a hard lesson to learn that when you're just getting started out is you want to keep going, you want to get a good review, get a good reference. You want that kind of affirmation that you're good at, you know, what you do. And then, but as soon as you start, you know, giving stuff or bundling stuff as, or doing some free work without like getting paid for it or or at least like being clear what the value is and all of a sudden that can turn into nightmares and all of a sudden sometimes you can get free give stuff away into an argument you know what i mean it's like i know what's all up with this- that you're getting something for free and you're gonna argue with me about it right or no i'm helping you and you're gonna tell me i'm doing it wrong so it's tough but yeah, yeah that's a lesson learned understanding your value and and then being able to charge for it unapologetically. But also, you got to be good. I mean, obviously, this is a, you know, we all want to give the best possible customer service. But as long as I think the lines are drawn up front, man, that really, you get old, you do what we want as a passion like I do. But the, whatever I can do to minimize stress and conflict later makes life happier. Yeah. So I think that's a big part of it is just clearly saying, here's what we do and and not giving anything up and you know, understanding your value and, and then you know pricing accordingly is kind of. Lessons learned. Lessons learned. Absolutely. So I do have a question about that. In full transparency to you and the listeners, I've had barters go bad and I've had barters go good. What made your most successful barters go good and what made your least successful barters go bad? I haven't really anymore done any, but I was thinking about this the other day. I should probably write like an ebook on this. I built a house about what is it six or seven years ago and we built it custom and i had an architect come in and we actually hired the builder to come in and do stuff so i had the ability to choose who the subcontractors were so i actually got a good chunk of my house built on barter so i got like all the grass sod put out all the landscaping all the irrigation some of the foundation work the carpeting 
some of the paint. I got like epoxy coating on the floor, tile done on it. That's just, so I, I, I racked it up. It was probably like tens of thousands of dollars that I did on bars. So that actually worked out really, really well. But I hadn't really done much since then because as things got rolling as an agency, there's just a lot less opportunity really to come in and the scale of the, the client that comes in, it's just hasn't really presented itself. Now, that being said, I do have another website property that gets all sorts of great traffic and I actually get a lot of great barter stuff on that. Like people write me blog posts or giving me backlinks or actually have a guy that's given me, like we have a site that ranks really well for like King crab and um, salmon. So he sends me like free Alaskan seafood every month. Based oh my on gosh. Does he need any services from me? <laughs> I know, right? I know. So some of that stuff I still do, but that doesn't really have to do with like the agency stuff. But how does it go good? I'm trying to think of ones that have actually gone bad. Like the second barter that I tried to do, my wife had an absolute fit because the first guy, the auto detailer, introduced me to a landscaper who needed help. And he said he was going to do us landscaping for us on the house we had before this one. And he had all sorts of like personal issues. Meaning <laughs> substance and stuff yeah. and alcohol and kind of stuff. So we just never got that. So I put the time and effort into the, you know, doing it and didn't get the return back. So that was kind of a burn. I also had has a couple other ones after that where, and it's really made me think about the clients we take on where is if you do a really good job with digital marketing, some people aren't able to handle the additional business that you give them. Yeah. So what's the point in meaning they either have terrible customer service so they end up you know killing themselves online because or they literally can't handle more than than they can do them on themselves and there's no way for them to scale out because they can't hire people or even run you know run a business of any size and also you generate well, what's the point of generating a lot of people a lot of leads if they can't capitalize sometimes that actually happened a little bit in those first barter deals and it just taught me to be like well you know, it really is really tough to operate on the really small business because some of these guys are, you know, trying stuff and they can't capitalize on the work that you give them, which means it's hard to, you know, sustain any kind of barter, you know, partnership, especially if you're doing ongoing work for folks. So later on, though, as I did a little more bartering things, it was more opportunity or stuff that I wanted and it came from bigger, more established companies. So there was a lot less failing that way. And I haven't really done much of it at all for my core business, but I have started to do some to kind of bootstrap this other website that I'm, I'm managing to, to rank well for just general information searches. And that seems to be going okay. I, that started to work last year. I was like, I'm going to start doing more of this. But yeah, I think it is a risky thing, but I think anybody that gets started in digital, I mean, we the biggest thing that's helped me in my business really is investing in myself, doing it on BART, or maybe even doing some stuff for free, and then making sure that the people I'm doing this work for understand the value of getting something on barter or maybe getting some amount of free work within scope. If like in my case, I was very deliberate about if I did some cheap work or free work or barter work that I was like, if I do this for you and we do it, I want to make sure that I can use you as an awesome reference. And then that's part of this gig is that I want to be able to like send new people to you and you be a screamer. Because if that happens where you can get somebody then they ask for a reference early on, especially when I don't have the book, and you can send them to three or four people, you know, the one people, one person, I guess people think, oh, you can maybe stack the deck a little bit. But if you got three or four and somebody ends up doing their reference and checking and each one of them say, this guy was awesome, that was a game changer for me in the beginning is to have that core group that knew that their role was to be a, you know, screaming <laughs> reference for me. Right. And that all kind of worked into that bartering thing. So again, some of them failed and some of them didn't. I haven't done a lot of them now because it just doesn't lend itself because I've got a little bit more of a substantial kind of a more business setup. It's not like lends itself to kind of the – I had a guy um, that we couldn't afford our services last two months ago that did house cleaning services. And he, was, he just couldn't come anywhere close to you know what we charge to get his thing off the ground. But I was half thinking, well, gosh, we, we don't really have a, a house cleaning service at our house. Oh my I mean, gosh, I'll build an Infusionsoft campaign for a house cleaning business that will barter with me. Oh, right. So I'm, we're thinking about like doing that too, but this didn't just work out for this one guy because I couldn't figure out how to, yeah. even with a barter and him paying for some, it still didn't really work out at the scale he was at, but that's I'll send on my you radar. More kids <laughs> and then you'll see the value of it. Right. <laughs> and all of our animals. Oh my gosh. So when I um, realized that bartering wasn't working was just like what you said. Like the value wasn't explained good enough. Like, right. and I have to say, I bartered for coaching. 
the first barter arrangement was good, but I personally wasn't doing the work that I needed to for my coaching. Like I wasn't taking my coaching seriously because I wasn't seeing the money go out of my account. Right. And then it's not going to work. The second coach that I bartered with like that just wasn't the right coach for me, but they knew that they wanted my services. So we bartered and I've only done one more. And I knew exactly what I was getting. They knew exactly what they were getting. And it's been amazing. Like that one is my last one. But if you're listening and you're like, oh, how can I make bartering work for my business? If it's going to work, just like Phil already said, you need to know the value that's being exchanged going both ways. Because if you don't, then it's not going to work. And I would even go so far. Did you have contracts? Because I think a contract is a must for a barter. Yes. Yeah. You know, later on, I did for sure. In the beginning, it was kind of word of mouth stuff. But after I got burnt the first time, mm-hmm. you know, it's all the scotch. Everything that comes, it's like it's just a series of how you got upside down. Like my first little agreement was like one page, like a paragraph. Now, now our website agreements are like five pages. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's always to cover all these things that have kind of happened. So it's really more for just expectations, too. So people know if they know what they're getting into, then nobody feels bad or feels like they got upside down or the short end of the stick. On both sides, right? Because I mean, right, absolutely. So, website design is not some. I mean, it's something I can do. But listeners, if you're listening, I'm not going to do your website. You're going to go talk to Phil. But one of the hardest arguments, and we've sort of already touched upon this, is people not seeing the value of having their website or the SEO. Like they don't understand how it's going to play out and where I've seen it coming around full circle a lot in just the last two years since I launched the podcast is I've seen a lot of people who had built their businesses off of Facebook and now they're scrambling. So could you touch a little bit upon why it's so important for people to have a website or is it in your opinion? Like, do we all need our own website if we have a business? I mean, I think we really do. And the reason is because it's the one digital asset that you really own. You know, when you do things, and I forget who I was talking to last week, but I did get a podcast interview with Mike Koala, who's a kind of a Twitter expert. And um, he ran a Twitter like SaaS company. And, you know, the lifespan of a piece of content on Twitter is like minutes in terms of like its value and visibility. And on Facebook, so he, said, he said it was like four to six hours. Well, on a website, it's permanent, right? Right. So, and no matter what people think, you know, Google is more important. People take it for granted. I mean, it's part of the modern purchase process. It's a $700 billion company. There's like 5 billion inter- Google searches a day. It's like 65,000 a second. Yeah, people Google stuff just all the time. It's the one common denominator in business. And Google doesn't really index Facebook posts or pages that well, even tweets and that kind of stuff. But the one thing that they do want to and they rank is website pages, right? So I think people need to be on all these places like Facebook and Twitter for sure. But we need to make sure that our best content is documented and kept on a digital asset that we own. And that is your website, right? So let me give an example. Like, you know, you get a lot of people that put their very best content up on Facebook where it kind of, if it's just posted once, you know, goes through that six hour window and then almost kind of disappears down the feed. But the best way to do it, we think one of the bigger mistakes that the business owners makes is not putting that great content on their website in the form of a blog post and then sharing it out to social media so they have to come back to the site to get the rest of the content and when that happens you know you can tag them with the adwords remarketing tag or the facebook pixel and that stuff you can build up your own audience that way um, but you also when you do that you end up building you know your website ends up kind of becoming the referral source for all your content and the documentation the kind of place where you document all your best content and when you do it in that way now it becomes a place that's easily searchable by google when somebody wants to look for an answer to a question or look for a new product or service. Much harder to do that. Now, I'm not saying Facebook and other spaces because people build entire businesses around Instagram and Facebook and, and to some extent maybe Twitter or some of the other ones. But I think they miss a huge opportunity with their own website because at the end of the day, I mean, Google's the one place that gets a monster amount of traffic. And even though people spend a lot less time on it, like they might spend hours or 
lots of minutes on Facebook. They spend a relatively short period of time on Google, but it's such a powerful amount of time because it's part of the purchase process for them. So your few minutes on Google are really important because you went and actually searched for something when you were going through like an informational search to buy something or to actually buy something worth a lot more time and money, which is why Google's like, again, a $700 billion company. 90% of their revenues come just from the AdWords platform, right? And the AdWords ads only account for about 10 to 20% of the overall Google searches. So the vast majority of people you know, are searching stuff. Uh, and looking for the organic rankings and things. So yeah, so you come full circle on that is the websites are really important because to me, that's your publishing platform. It's the place where you should put all your best content and share it out and make it like your marketing hub so that you put it all there and share it out and make people come back. And when you do this in a way where you've thought about who your ideal customer is and what your keywords are, and you build the right content around it, you bring people back. All these signals and things that you build when you treat it and nurture it like an asset ends up building some really great organic traffic because Google all of a sudden sees all this kind of stuff. Because there really is not that much difference in having a native Facebook post versus a blog post that's on your websites that's shared out to Facebook where people kind of have to click it to come back to see the rest of it. And visually, it's not that much different, but it's a huge benefit to your website to be able to get that social signal and that click from social media back to your website. And so, yeah, for me, I think websites are more important than ever because they're just the way businesses use and have a marketing platform. Absolutely. I have to say, I've been shocked I mean, we're both podcasters. You're a podcaster. I've been shocked by some of my podcasting friends who don't have show notes pages. Oh, or there's actually a lot of them. I know. Up on like they'll put their they'll host the podcast, and there's some actually some pretty big ones on a third party platform. It's not even on their website. It's like on Blog Talk Radio or some other place where it's like you know they basically put all their best content and don't even have a website or a show notes page. Drives me nuts. Yeah. So how is that benefiting you? But I mean, because what they're doing is they're driving traffic to you, blog talk radio. But where are the show notes on your website? And I'll tell you listeners that since I launched my podcast, well, it will be about two years when this episode goes live. I have seen my web traffic 10 times increase since just because of the show notes. And a lot of episodes... I mean, okay, let me just be totally honest. This is episode 400 and something. I'll tell you the exact amount or the exact number in just a couple minutes. But the first 40 episodes have transcriptions. We need to catch up on all the rest. And I know some people are like, well, why? Well, because there's content. That's SEO food. Totally. One of my favorite things on my site. I transcribe my put them out. You do get a little more value if you dress them up a little bit. So I'll put like... H title tags in yeah. there. I'll put you know bulleted lists. I'll put cross links in it. I'll maybe sometimes put pictures about the video and stuff like that. But I've got a lot of my podcast episodes are ranking for some pretty competitive keywords on my little kcwebdesigner.com website. So it's a huge benefit. Yeah. I mean, and I, I can see I use SEO by Yoast. I think that's Yoast yep. SEO one way or the other. I know I'm getting it right somehow. But they'll tell you like readability is this good? And the ones, or maybe it's the SEO tab. I don't know. See, I don't do SEO people. I just don't. I do what I can for myself and what doesn't get done right now just doesn't get done. But it tells me this post doesn't have enough words. And right. that's all of them without transcriptions. Exactly. Yep. So you put them up there and you maybe plug the embed the video on there and don't have like the full transcription on. So yep. you'll say, oh, Yoast, I think, flags people at like 300 words or less. So if it's like 250 words, they'll say, oh. You know, it's not hitting the 300 word mark. So, you know, we recommend that you have more. Of course, if you have transcriptions, you're usually those are thousands of words. Thousands. Yeah. Thousands. And it's relatively cheap to transcribe. People realize that it's like a buck a minute on Rev.com is 20 minutes is $20. That's pretty good for a long form. Like 0.9% accuracy. Oh, yeah, because it's human done. So that's pretty good. I mean, it is really solid. Yeah. We actually use either Temi or Trint. Dot com, which is AI. Those are the automated ones that are real, a lot cheaper. But Yeah, they're like 5 to 10 cents a minute for the transcription, but then it does take time for my team to go back and listen and make sure that it's... Somebody's got to edit a little bit. Yeah, there are yeah. some nice... <laughs> we have had some hilarious, like, Temi or Trent 
oopses. I was going to say, if you use Temi, somebody's got to read through the transcription because it's like 90, 95%, but somebody's got to spend the time to clean up the 5%. Yeah. Where it's more expensive, but. This is so not appropriate, but I just have to share. There was somebody who came on and was talking about breath, the healing power of breath. I'm sure you can already see what word was being like substituted, but I won't point a finger. I know which tool it was. It was one of those two. And everywhere where breath, B-R-E-A-T-H-E, people, everywhere where that was in was breasts. Oh, man. (laughs) It's like, okay, we're not talking about breasts here. We're talking about breath. So take a deep breath, not a deep breast. (laughs) But yeah, it's been amazing. Where do you see your business going and what are you most excited about in the next 90 days? Well, the next 90 days, I've actually, for my own business here, I'm really excited that we have come out with a, um, it's basically almost kind of a local niche magazine, which sounds really weird for an SEO digital guy to go back and figure out a print way. But I've developed this network of sites and we have a national site. This is the one that ties into that bar thing that I was talking about, but it's got some national traffic on some generic like general searches but we've also created like a series of micro sites around it that are very specific to cities well the one that we have here and uh, that we made for Kansas City does really well it ranks like for everything locally that we put in it so if you look for like plumbers or HVAC or any kind of home service pretty much anything we put on make a top 10 list it, it competes with like the home advisors the Yelps and all the Angie's lists that dominate a lot of the local search results well we put these lists out. It's been a great lead generator because people come in and say, how can we get on the list or how can we sponsor it? But one of the things we wanted to take this to the next level is really almost kind of develop like a local niche, small business, you know, magazine that kind of explains um, people, local people's business stories and, and you know, kind of helps tell the story basically of the, the local and family owned businesses that and make that into a little like almost magazine we physically mail out. So we think that'll kind of complete the circle. Plus you, sometimes when you go out and market and talk to people, just having the print thing to hand or that they see can really make an impact. And I say this because, you know, I've written a couple books from my own business and that really was a game changer in terms of, you know, helping build authority is kind of having that a nice physical piece of content that helps kind of reinforce authority and you know people just don't throw books away either they don't throw magazines away so i think magazine by itself is not maybe a great way for people to advertise unless it's very specific but here we've got this thing we've got maybe a local magazine but we've also got this back end piece where the people that are going to advertise and already rank really well for the list that we have so we kind of like reversed it you know what i mean i think a lot of magazines i've talked to locally around the country they look at their website as like this unimportant side piece thing that they need to have to like republish. But I think that should be the main piece, right? Cause if you can if you can put uh, content out there in a magazine, but then put it back online in a way that gives you like 10 times the value that you did on the print, that to me is the way to run magazines, especially like local niche and lifestyle ones. So that's, you asked, that's a kind of a long winded response, but it's me, it's almost kind of like, you know, trying to dip our toes into some very specific um, localized niche magazine that we hope to use as a model maybe to break into other cities too. Oh, I really love that because I do love when my print magazines come in the mail. You look at them, right? It's hard not, you know, most people, you know, I do throw out the ones that are like clear, you know, listing things, but a local magazine that's got actual stories in it, or I don't think my wife throws out most, she'll actually thumb through most of them, but some of the ones I won't, but yeah, the true magazine one, it's, it's hard to throw those out. Yeah. And the catalogs, I still get in the mail, like Ikea. I still look through it because Costco, I didn't know Costco has a catalog. Oh, they got, oh yeah. They have one, like a little, I don't know what it's called, a really catalog. It's like a half. The half thing they send, that mini magazine. It's like, Yeah. I think that a lot of people, though, forget that there's a whole segment of the population that spends a lot of time in the car and may not be glued. Okay, maybe I'm in the very small segment of the population that is not glued to my smartphone. In full disclosure, I have not been glued to my smartphone for the last two weeks because it's missing in my house somewhere. Okay. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, out. it's actually been nice to not know where my phone is. I don't know what phone calls I've missed, but anybody who would be calling it knows that they can call my home phone. Yes, we still have a landline. And if they send a text message, it comes through to my Mac. But I haven't been screen sucking on my smartphone. And the kid who lost it hasn't been screen sucking either. 
Mm. So any guest who's an author who wants to come on the podcast and wants me to read their book, I ask for the physical version because I love to take out my highlighter and my pen and take notes. And I still have... You don't throw it away though either. I think that's the... No. Most people keep the stuff, I think, which is really powerful. Yeah. I actually was just considering whether or not I was going to renew my Audible subscription because when I'm in the car... I'm usually being screamed at by kids. I'm just being totally transparent here. I mean, not screamed at in the worst possible way, but I have a four-year-old and three-year-old twins. I cannot listen to anything. Plus, Phil, I drive a 1996 GMC conversion van. It doesn't even have an auxiliary jack. So if I'm going to listen to Audible in my car, like I have to wear headphones, which probably isn't legal. (laughs) So, yeah, I do carry around books. I carry on magazines and when i'm at numerous soccer games i'm doing something like it's tangible the right word like i'm feeling it it's not just looking at an electronic screen i guess that's still tangible but i'm thinking about like the paper that i can smell for just that book hopefully it smells good that's awesome yeah and i also saw one other little tidbit there is i've been talking to help people that think you know some really good targeted like print stuff is can be effective for some businesses because you got all this stuff where people have been like doing all digital marketing, sign up for my email, everybody's getting like spammed into oblivion on stuff they actually like opted into. And it's like, you know, a lot of people have pulled back from print. So the spam, the email stuff is, uh, the, sorry, the actual print mails, you know, for a lot of folks has actually dropped some because people, so if you get back into it a little bit, there's an opportunity where, hey, you know, they might actually pick up and see a message where they might blow through or just have deleted or even opted out of, you know, the, all the emails people sign up for. What about those fake greeting cards that we get in the mail, though? Is that a bit much? <laughs> it is. Like, if I'm going to get a card in the mail, I don't want it to come from a service. And I understand the benefit of the service. Don't get me wrong. I really do. There's several of them out there. I think it's nice that they actually did sign up for a service that looks like they sent me a personalized card. But if I'm going to... kind of lazy. It is. Why fake being personal? <laughs> Just Yeah, be because I can go to Walmart or my local big box store and buy a just a set of blank cards, which may cost me a whole six dollars, and take two minutes and write a thank you note, like a personalized thank you note in my real handwriting. And yes, it means I have to go to the post office and purchase stamps. I guess I can purchase those through the mail now though too, and send out something real. I totally agree. In fact, we just did an experiment yesterday for this little like magazine product we have there locally. And we specifically had somebody like write out instead of like trying to like print out advertising opportunities. We like hand wrote the notes on the address because people will open, (laughs) you know, the handwritten stuff more than they would like, you know, one that looks like it's been printed off of a printer or a sticker or something like that. So that's kind of to your point, right? I mean, make it more personal, the chances that people are going to appreciate it or even maybe open it. I'm a lot higher, I think, when it's really, truly looks like it came from an actual person. Yeah, absolutely. Versus a machine. Yeah. And it won't cost that much. The companies that do it for you, I think they charge like 3 or $4 a card. So, yes, it might take you two minutes of time. But I think the ROI on those two to five minutes of time will pay off more in the long run. Agreed. Phil, where can listeners find you online, connect, and get to know more about what you're doing? Well, the kind of the flagship, the little website that could, you know, is kcwebdesigner.com. That's really what got me here today. But like we were talking before the show, you get out there and you do internet marketing and you get on podcasts and have your own podcast and write books and put yourself out there. All of a sudden, your audience and your potential client base opens up. Well, it's harder to market yourself as a local Kansas City company anymore, even though a lot of our clients are coming out of that. So we basically rebranded to Bare Knuckle and that's bareknuckle.marketing is kind of what's going to be the second or new brand that we're going to have. But definitely check out SEO for growth. I put everything that we've been doing the last 12 years in terms of SEO and digital marketing. I went and wrote a book. It became an Amazon bestseller. Actually, it's the third Amazon bestseller I've had, but this one actually sold you know, a fair number of copies and got some pretty good um, press and a lot of good endorsements on it. That's SEO for growth. You can check out the official book site, um, seoforgrowth.com. And, you know, I like to hang out on LinkedIn. Anybody that uh, put all of my best, newest content on there, that's the one channel that I spend more time on because I'm not a big, you know, personally not a big Facebook person and, and Twitter. We, we're active on them from a company, but that's just a place to redistribute stuff. I actually engage with people more on LinkedIn. So please check out my LinkedIn profile. 
Um, and the last thing I'll say, one of the things that's really been a game changer for me and my business in the last year is getting to talk to people like Kim on great podcasts. So, you know, I've been on a, probably about 70 podcasts now, and it's such an awesome way to get out, share a story, give some of your best advice, reach a new audience. You've done a great job building your audience, Kim, and people trust you and you put out great content and book great guests. Well, it's a huge privilege for somebody like me to get stepped in and introduced like an expert because it builds my own personal branding and authority, right? But I also get instant access to you know, a great group of people, your audience, which is a super good privilege. And then when you've done this 70 times, it almost becomes like a virtual speaking tour. You it know is. What I mean? Yeah. And when you talk about show notes, it's the number one best SEO strategy that I've ever seen is getting on websites because podcast websites, you got to keep in mind, people like you, Kim, you're an advanced content marketer. You're investing in your website. You're nurturing. You're putting great content. You're driving real traffic to it. Well, the people that earn backlinks like myself because we came, spent time with you and gave good advice, we get show note links back to our show. It doesn't take too many of those to really make a huge impact and send Google a very strong signal. So doing a guesting campaign like this has been really huge, huge bang for the buck. And that's probably its own other show. But that's a great – and actually I've had so much success on it for myself personally that I started a separate company with my partner called podcastbookers.com. And we have dozens of clients now, but we're actually booking companies. Like we had um, Yext.com, which they're like a $2 billion company. We're booking their entire team. There's six of them <laughs> that we're booking them on podcasts across the country. We actually, today, I think we're signing up Moz.com, which is a big, it's probably the industry wow. authority for SEO. It's one of the guys there that actually does the podcast. He wants to be booked because he's done. So they're kind of starting to catch on to it. And more so because I think a lot of people look at podcasts and podcasting almost kind of in this one dimensional way. But if you tie a little bit of SEO and marketing strategy there's so many things you can get off of it that are very powerful. And it really comes back to me to do them both of them too. I mean, to get the full benefit, you know, I've got my own show. I've also got a guesting campaign. Well, that was the one thing I think early on that I didn't appreciate as I was getting all these great shows and all these people were like podcast consumers. Well, inevitably, there's going to be a few people on your show, Kim, that are like, oh, Phil, whatever he said resonated with me. I liked his tips and his tactics. I'm going to go check out his show, right? Well, all of a sudden, if you have a show early on when you're getting a guesting, you're in front of like lots of podcast consumers. So it's almost like you're building up your audience too right. also at the same time. So. It's really been awesome, and that's one of the podcastbookers.com is, is a booking service, but it's one where we really tried to, you know, most people that use booking services are just getting on to get on the show and get that one quick fix of getting exposure to an audience and moving it on. We actually try and tie an SEO campaign around it, and it's like 10 times more valuable, I think, than for the same amount of money or less than most people that just go out to like do that, you know, get guested on as many shows as they can. So check that one out, podcastbookers.com. That's something that I really got really excited about. And it, it's been the best investment that I've ever made for myself, you know, because you see how it works yourself, Kim, with like, it is your blogging strategy for having your own podcast, right? You're on it, you transcribe it and do show notes. It's like, yeah, maybe you'll put a blog every once in a while, but it's so much easier for me to like do a show and publish it. And it's the same way around on some of these other shows that I've been on. Interesting story. I want to close this out. I don't want to keep talking about it. Well, I do want to give you a really interesting tip that's helped me out quite a bit. I've been on some shows that don't actually transcribe their notes. So I asked the host at the end, well, if you're not going to transcribe, do you mind if I do it at my own cost? And then I take it and transcribe it and make a guest post out of their episode on mine and give them links back. And it's worked awesome for me. In fact, I, the very first one that I've done is if you Google search podcasting SEO benefits or the SEO benefits of podcasting, it's ranks number one on Google globally. And it's the transcripts for somebody else's show that I was on. Right? That is such an amazing idea. Oh, my goodness. So you can just go nuts with us. You've been doing it and you're way ahead of the game. But I just got introduced to like the whole thing of podcasting. Cause I was like one of these people out there that are like, oh, podcasting, it's cool, I guess. But it seems like a fringe marketing tactic. There are so many awesome things about it. It's just like the gift that keeps on giving. So like I say, it's real privilege to be here. That's kind of like my one hack. And the cool thing about a guesting campaign, if you have your own VA or even if you don't have one, you can do your own guesting campaign. You know what I mean? Put your own one sheet together. Pitch yourself to shows in the beginning. If some people get busy, well, you can hire maybe a service like ours to do it. But you know, some people already have like their own VAs and stuff. It's so easy for people to kind of reach out 
and do that kind of stuff and not have to hire somebody for it. But it's like an awesome, awesome SEO slash personal branding, like authority building campaign. And I pretty much recommend that, you know, everybody look at it or, or see if it, it's, um, absolutely. You know, and you go on and you have a good chat, hopefully yeah, great fun. chat with, right? yeah, but you go on, you have a great chat with the host. The podcasting community is very close. Like yes. we know other hosts who could benefit from what you know, and then we introduce and yeah, it's like a, I mean, it's in a good way, but it's like a spider web. And all of a sudden you're introduced to all of our friends because you just came on and had a good conversation. Conversation is the key word there though. Right. Not infomercial because exactly. I mean, I'm sure you listeners can see that no part of this has been an infomercial. So you try and just bring in your best tips and whatever. Yeah. And then that's what people buy. and want to hear your great stuff for your sale or your coupon or go check this out. Yeah. But just give your best. That's the only way to do any marketing. Now you got to basically sell by teaching. I mean, it's, like ads don't really work at all. You just got to give your best information out all the time. And then hopefully it resonates with people and they want to come back and follow you. Absolutely. Phil, thank you so much for coming on. Listeners, I know I said I would share the number earlier in the episode, but you can find all the show notes, including the links back to Phil's sites at thugkimsutton.com forward slash PP418. So there's another ding for Google. But Phil, thank you so much for being on. This has been amazing. Do you have one more piece of parting advice or a golden nugget that you can offer to listeners? I would say this. I think anybody should do this. It's one of the better content marketing tactics that I have, and that is take a fresh look at your website, commit to blogging. If you're going to blog, you got to find somebody that's going to help you out most of the time because most people don't have time to do it. If you do, that's great. But what you want to do when you do this strategy is create a blog in a series of like 10 or 15 posts, or maybe even more. And the idea is that you sit down and strategize, make your series look like a table of contents around a title, and then all of a sudden you do these and release them out once a week. By the end of like 15 weeks or so, you have a book, or at least a very strong ebook, right? And then you can spin that up into a PDF for your website for a download as a call to action. But more importantly, you can hire somebody maybe on Fiverr for like 15 bucks to format you and make a Kindle out of it. All of a sudden, you can very easily go up and self-publish up on Amazon and make yourself an author. Now you're on your way to becoming a branding, building your own personal brand and being a published author. Then if you really want to take it to the next level, you can then use that book as a way to get yourself booked on podcasts. So that blogging, you know, website slash blogging series strategy slash book authorship slash now, you know, leverage your way into podcasting. That's my one parting advice where I think anybody can use that hack as a way to pretty quickly get build up personal branding and authority in a much shorter amount of time than it might take you to kind of do things randomly. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level.